Amen. Well, orchestra, thank you for setting the stage for tomorrow for a little night music that kind of sets our heart as the moon shadow kind of crosses over and, and uh, we experience this time in our history. Well, good morning, church. I'm so glad that you've joined us for worship this morning. I, I just want to start with a word of prayer. Will you join me? Holy and loving God, we ask that you touch our hearts today, that we hear your word and absorb it and live it, touch our souls, our minds, help us to be one with you in this moment. Gracious God, touch my heart, touch my mind, my soul my tongue and my lips, that I might speak your words. May your words be mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I first want to start by saying that if you have been to Salem for a number of years, you've been going to Salem for a number of years, you know that politics from the pulpit is kind of a boundary for me. I do not preach politics from the pulpit. And I say this because there's going to be some times when I say some things in the sermon today that you may think, oop, Terry's going political. No, I'm not. I assure you that today I am speaking strictly from the biblical gospel lens. Today we address the fear of the other talked about the fear of failure, the fear of tomorrow or unknown, and today we're going to talk about what does it mean to fear someone else. To love our neighbor is the teaching of Jesus Christ, right church? In fact, he says to love our neighbor as ourselves. It sounds simple enough, doesn't it? But it's very difficult to live out fully. To live love perfected is the goal Christ Jesus gave us. Yet so many times we stand in fear of our brother or our sister just because they're different. I would say that 99.9% .9 of our fears are unfounded because we learned them as a child. I was reading through some funny fears the other day, arachnophobia, the, all of the, the funny fears that people have, and, and I, you know, I really, it kind of washed over me. These are fears that people learn, just like my fear of sharks that I told you about a couple of weeks ago, right? I learned that as a child. It came from an experience. I was on my first family vacation that I can remember. I'm five years old at the time, and Dad took our family to New Orleans. Now, my granny lived with us at the time, and so she was along on the vacation, and she was terrified that I'm going to get lost, so she was right there with me all the way through the vacation, and Dad decided that we would go deep-sea fishing. Now then, my granny was terrified of the water, terrified. Now that probably stemmed from something that happened to her when she was a child. 
but here she is in the, on a boat in the ocean parked over a sunken ship and they are catching nothing but sharks. <laughs> and with every catch, they're placing them on a table. I'm five years old, that puts me at eye level, right? And I see their teeth. And then my granny, being terrified of the water more so than anything else, says to me, Terry Sue, if you fall overboard, those sharks will eat you before your daddy can ever get you. <laughs> Thank you, Granny. I learned that fear, see? I learned it. Learned that fear. You know, our human instinct is fight or flight, right? And I do believe that if I was in the water with a shark, I would be just like Jesus and walk on water, right across that water. I would, I would be flight. And a lot of our human nature kind of takes on that. We learn all kinds of fears. Fears from our family, fears from the neighborhood growing up, fears from community, society. And in today's time, I believe that we learn fear from technology. If something happens in the news, it makes the news because it's kind of unusual, right? Well, then in today's time, that goes viral. And that perpetuates our fears because we think that this unusual then is happening everywhere. We learn these fears. Now, when I was growing up in, in southern Illinois, somewhere along the line, I learned that it was not safe to show up in East St. Louis as a white kid. Why? Because most of the community is African American. And so my dad did not teach me that. My mom did not teach me that. There were no racial slurs in my household. I grew up with educators, a love for all people. But yet in my community, somewhere along the line, I learned that it wasn't safe to go to East St. Louis, that I might get hurt, that I might get beat up, that I might get killed. I learned that fear. And by the same token, some of my black friends say to me, I learned it wasn't safe to show up in the rural communities where the rednecks live. Because I could get, what? Hurt, killed, beat up. The same thing, right? We learned these fears from each other, from culture. Now, my worship leader in Texas, his name was Derek McCampbell. Six foot five black man, athletic, big, terrified to leave the city. Terrified. I was on a worship planning retreat one time where I went away to do some uh, planning for the year, and there were some things that I needed to discuss with DMAC. That's what we called him, DMAC. And so I called and I said, Would you meet me halfway? I'm out here at the lake, I'll meet you halfway at this restaurant, and that meant he had to come out of the city a ways. He met me for dinner, and he was literally terrified. He said, Terry Sue, you brought me out here where they could string me up. Where did he learn that fear? He learned it because how many thousands of men had been lynched just because of the color of their skin. He learned that in society. He learned that in history. He learned that fear. 
And those are the kinds of fears that we're talking about today. The fear of the other. Every generation has its own people that we fear, right? Think back to World War II for just a moment. Our nation feared the people from Japan. Because on December 7th, 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. In 1942, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the same president who said in the height of the Great Depression when he found that the fear was just overtaking the land, he said what? We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. And so he encouraged the nation. He encouraged them not to, to live in this fear. And yet, in 1942... He establishes an executive order out of fear. He, just, he declares that the West Coast is a military zone, that all people of Japanese descent who live near a military zone will forcibly located to internment camps because we were afraid they were spies. Even the ones maybe that were born in the United States, if they had Japanese descent, out of fear, we make this law. 100 to 130,000 people who were Japanese Americans were moved to live in these camps. Not a proud moment in our history, right, church? All because of fear. Bishop Will Willimon has written a book entitled Fear of Other, No Fear in Love in which he states this, our problem in regard to fear is that we fear the other more than we fear the God who commands love each other. Think about that for a second. We, our problem in regard to fear is that we fear the other more than we fear the God who commands love each other. In today's generation, who do you think our children are learning to fear? You know the answer to this. You automatically have an other that pops into your mind. I don't have to name it. When we live with this in our minds, we live with this underlying fear of other people. Our actions are almost never admirable. When we let our fears guide us, our love cannot be perfected, church. What did the scriptures say? What does wisdom of the scriptures tell us in with regards to this inner battle that is within us of human nature? King David dealt with it. We hear that in Psalm 27. Remember, he was frightened he would run from the king he would hide in caves he dealt with this inner turmoil as well and he says in psalm 27 he writes these beautiful words the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear the lord is my stronghold of my life of whom shall i be afraid he says wait for the lord be strong and let your courage your heart take courage wait for the lord He's singing this beautiful psalm 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He claims the Lord is the one who brings this. The Lord is the one who brings the salvation. We're to wait and be strong and let our hearts take courage and to wait for him. In 587, the Israelites who prayed and sang this psalm saw Babylon destroy Jerusalem. They were taken as slaves and exiles from their home, and yet they sing, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In the time of Jesus, the Jews who prayed and sang this song saw Rome overpower their land and crush the weak. They saw the cruelty of Rome at the hands of the king and the soldiers, yet they still trusted and they sang, The Lord of my light is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Christians saw Jesus crucified. The apostles, Paul and Peter, martyred by Rome. And when it was illegal to sing these words, they sang in Roman catacombs, And they trusted, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The first letter of John tells us that perfect love drives out all fear. He points us to that perfected love in who? Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Who did Jesus die for? Someone said, everyone, yeah. But you in Romans, it says, Jesus died for the ungodly. The other. You, me. John says, my beloved friends, I'm going to read to you from a message, the message, a paraphrase, Pastor Sheila read it to you from the common English version. I'll just highlight some words in here that just came out to me. My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love, so you can't know him if you don't love. I love how the message puts that we're in relationship with God and if we're in relationship with God and we have this unity with God then we should be united with others. We don't know the first thing about love the scripture says if we're not loving another. God loved us like this fully human fully divine in Jesus Christ, we certainly ought to love each other. He gave us the perfect example. His love becomes complete in us, perfect love. Think about this. Jesus reached out and touched the untouchable, the lepers, the people who were cast out by society. He brought the little children to him. His love is the perfect example of how we are to love. And in that, our love is made perfect. It's being completed. 
when we love like Jesus loved. God is love when we take up permanent residence in a life of love. We live in God and God lives in us. The word in some translations is abide. That we're in God and God is in us. This way love has the run of the house, becomes at home and mature in us. Does love have the run of your household? how the scriptures put it the this way love has the run of the house becomes at home and mature in us well-formed love banishes fear and then it goes further and says he loved us first he loved us first so he's given this beautiful picture of what perfect love looks like of how we can respond in this. And then John tells us clearly what perfect love is not in the last verse. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. You've got to love both. John's emphasis to us is this perfect love in our everyday, ordinary actions, our faith taking root in how we live our lives, how we react or don't react, what we say how we are portrayed in the world around us, our everyday, ordinary interactions with others. I think that's really the question today for us. What are our everyday, ordinary interactions with others look like? Are they love or are they fear? Jesus tells a story about an everyday, ordinary interaction with another. Remember, it's, it comes, the story comes to us posed as a question by a man of the law. He says, Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? He was trying to get around it, see? Just where do I, you know, where can I cut that off? When can I say I don't have to love? That's what the man of the law is really asking. And Jesus tells a story. He says, there's a man who's going down to Jericho from Jerusalem, right? And he's robbed and beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road. And there are two people who pass by on their way that just keep on walking. One's a priest and one's a Levite. Now, you would think that those were the ones who would stop and help, right? The people of God, the priest, the Levite. They were people of religion, of faith, of knowing this relationship with God, but yet they just keep on walking. And Jesus picks someone who was detested at the time, who was the other, who not only stopped and helped, but took him to an inn where he could recover and paid for the stay and said, if there's any other costs, 
I'll come back and pay them. He goes beyond love, and that's the Samaritan. In that day and time, the Samaritan was the other. So really, Jesus is talking to this man of the law, and he's helping this man look within himself because the question of who is my neighbor is not the question. Jesus, help, Jesus is helping him ask the real question, and that is, who am I? Who am I? It's not easy to ask that question, is it? When you really ask that question of yourself, who am I really? If I say I am a Christian, do my actions affirm that statement? If I say that I love my neighbor as myself, do my actions and my everyday ordinary interactions say that? Because Jesus said not only do we love our neighbor, but we're to love who are enemies as well. Do I love like that? Do I love sacrificially as Christ did? Or do I love just the people like me, that believe like me, that look like me? Do I even love the people that spew words of hate? Do I love my neighbor like that? Do I love the people that have caused pain, that hold torches up? and shout racial slurs. Do I love those people? Do I love the people who have no regard for human life? Do I love the unlovable? Do I love like Jesus loved? He died for you, for me, for the ungodly. Jesus says it isn't about them. It's about you. Do you love? Who am I? And if we say, who am I? We must say, who are we? We have to ask that of, our, of ourselves as a church as well. Do we welcome others as Jesus welcomed? Do we stand in the gap for people when it's called for? Do we respond with grace and forgiveness when we don't want to? Are we the church? Do we stand up and say, this is wrong. This is not the way of Jesus. This is what Jesus taught us. Who are we? I think every person kind of comes to a defining moment when they have to ask themselves that question, who am I? I share a story with you as we close about a young man that made a big impact on my life. It happened in the very early years of my ministry in East Texas. His name was Hank. He was a young man that came into our youth group one evening. He was a young black man, and he came to an all-white youth group, to an all-white church. And I had immediate respect for Hank 
Because not only did he come once, but he kept coming. And I developed a relationship with Hank. He became part of our youth group. He became part of our small groups. Wonderful discussions came out of that with our youth. And as he was coming to the church more often, some in the church were starting to see him. Now, this is 1990 or so. The first time I ever entered Marshall, Texas was 1987. My first Christmas parade in Marshall, Texas, there was a black Santa and a white Santa in the Christmas parade. Still a very segregated place in 1987. Highway 80 was the dividing line. You could see it. And Hank comes. He comes to the youth group. And more people start to notice that he's showing up. And, and one of the older members, who I also loved dearly, came to me and said, you know if Hank comes to worship, he'd heard me speak of Hank. He'd met Hank. Hank had not yet been to worship with us, just youth group and some events and things like that. And I was praying that Hank would come to worship one day. And I shared this. And he said, you know, if Hank comes to worship, he'll probably be escorted to the back of the church. And with no ill will in my heart, I looked at him with love as best I could. And I said, if that happens, I will go to the back and I will grab him by the hand and he will walk down the aisle with me and he will sit at the front with me. It was a defining moment for me because I had to ask, who am I? Who are we, church? Who are we? Have you seen the movie Hidden Figures yet? If you have not seen it, you need to see this movie. It is a wonderful movie based off of a true story in the events of the U.S. and Russian race to uh, put a man in orbit or a man on the moon. And my favorite scene in the movie is where Al Harrison, who's the head of the department of NASA, finds out that Catherine, the young black woman who's a part of his department, who is the numbers genius, he finds out that she's having to walk over a half mile to use the restroom because there are no colored restrooms in the building. That's how they did that back then, colored restroom, white restroom. And when he asks her where she's been, and she says that she's been to the restroom, and it, there's, it's a half mile away. Harrison then proceeds to tear down all the signs of all the restrooms at NASA. And when people are staring at him as he's beating down the sign of the bathroom, he says this, at NASA, we all pee the same color. But in that moment, you knew who Al Harrison was, right? You knew who he was. Has the love of God taken up full residence 
in our homes, in our lives, in our everyday interactions? Do we let God rule or do we let the world rule? The defining moment. And as church, as a church in this day and this time, we have to stand up for love. You know, if, today, if Jesus was here today, right now and in this moment, he was telling the story about a man coming down from, let's say, St. Louis to Memphis. He was telling a story. He might say the United Methodist minister walked on by. He might say the leader of the church walked on by. Who would stop? Who would be the one that Jesus would use? You have to fill in the blank in that. And in that moment, you're asking, who am I? And the relationship with God becomes perfected. Love. We can live this life unafraid, knowing that Christ guides us, loves us, and encourages us. May Christ be perfected. May Christ's love be perfected in each of us today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.